You are listening to the Visualizing War and Peace podcast. In each episode, we look at how people have experienced, described, or imagined armed conflict in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which representations of war and peace can have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig, and I direct the Visualizing War and Peace project at the University of St. Andrews. In 2023, with generous funding from the Imperial War Museum's 1418 Now Legacy Fund, we're going to be hosting two art exhibitions designed to explore one of the many legacies of conflict, forced migration. Artist Diana Forster has created a moving art installation for us, which traces the long journey taken by her mother as a young child when she and her family were forcibly displaced from Poland during World War II to forced labour camps in Soviet Russia. Entitled Somewhere to Stay, its 10 panels depict the comfort and security of life before deportation and the various forms of accommodation which the forced migrants ended up trying to make home in, from wooden barracks in Siberian gulags to an ordinary house in Uzbekistan, to army tents, stables in a palace in Iran, thatched rendezvous in Tanzania, and finally Nissan huts in resettlement camps in Scotland. The aim of this artwork is to communicate the unimaginably shocking rupture between a settled normal life and a terrifying future decided by people who didn't care whether those they were transporting lived or died. Diana's family home was in fact in modern day Ukraine and the story she tells through her art obviously has distressing resonances with what many people are suffering today in many different parts of the world. Over the coming months, we want the story of this historic forced migration from 80 years ago to help us ask a question of great contemporary importance. How can we visualize the rupture, loss, and long-lasting struggles experienced by people who've been displaced from their homes through conflict? To help answer that question, and to generate more conversation about how forced migration gets narrated and understood, we're releasing a series of podcasts featuring different voices on forced migration, including people with lived experience of displacement, and a range of artists and authors who've thought hard about how to visualise forced migration for others. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Lena Fadell, an assistant professor at Harriet Watt University. With a background in languages and intercultural studies, Lena's research looks at how we navigate sameness and difference in multicultural contexts. She's particularly interested in how people reconstruct their identities and engage in homemaking following displacement. And she's done a lot of work in recent years with Syrian refugees in Scotland. As well as publishing academic articles, Lena recently performed a one-woman show at the Edinburgh Fringe designed to expose the double standards that exist both at the UK border and in the media's portrayal of refugees. As Lena described it, this was my chance to speak out publicly about the injustices committed against migrants, refugees and asylum seekers and to reflect on how we think and speak of them in our everyday conversations. So Lena's work really goes to the heart of what we're interested in, in our project on visualising forced migration. And I'm really delighted that she's found time to talk to me today. Lena, thank you very much and welcome to the Visualising War and Peace podcast. Hi, Alice. Thank you so much for having me. So Lena, your academic work and your Fringe show were both inspired not just by your own, your background in intercultural studies, but also by your personal experiences as a Syrian woman who's lived in the UK for 17 years. At the core of your work is a belief that storytelling is, is vital in deepening understanding of different migrant experiences. So I wonder if we can start with you sharing a bit of your own story. What brought you to Scotland 17 years ago and what made you stay? 
Indeed, I'm a firm believer in the power of stories and storytelling. Um, I think storytelling can be a compelling way to encourage people to visualize and empathize with migrant experiences. There is an undeniable human impulse to use stories to explain the world and understand ourselves. In fact, it's more than an impulse, it's a necessity. We're all made of stories and without them, we can barely communicate. As for my story, where do I start? It's funny, if you'd asked me this question 17 years ago, I would have given you a straightforward answer. Um, I was a 23-year-old student who came to the UK to pursue postgraduate studies. Um, I was a woman with hopes and dreams of a better uh, future and a successful career, a future waiting for me back home in Syria. But a lot has changed since then, and I've changed a lot as a result, as one should. So my story now has all these layers, um, and I've lived, uh, you know, since I've lived under different, albeit interrelated identities, as a mother, a migrant, as a refugee, a new citizen, and as an academic. Um, so it's not straightforward anymore. But just to give you a little bit of a background. Um, I was born and grew up in Syria's harbour city of Latakia, uh, a city with a great Mediterranean lifestyle, no different from those enjoyed in Italy or Greece or Spain, but significantly more ancient. Um, Latakia uh, is a city with a fabulously refined food culture and which had been um, just like the rest of the country, a multicultural, uh, multi-ethnic, and also a multi-religious society for millennia. Um, I had a secular middle-class upbringing and my parents, both university professors, did not raise me in a narrowly Muslim environment. We had a good life and Syria was beautiful, peaceful and safe, but of course, uh, you don't see that in the news anymore. Um, what I loved the most about growing up in Syria was that it was based on a secular, non-sectarian philosophy. At least that was my experience. After I came to the UK, I longed to finish my studies and go back to my country. But unfortunately, when major conflict in Syria broke out in March 2011 and escalated into a full-scale war, I had to make a tough decision and I ended up staying. I guess at that point, home as I knew it wasn't the same anymore. There was no country to go back to, um, the country I knew anyway. So I had to make the decision, uh, that decision for myself, um, and my family, and I decided to make Scotland home. And that was the beginning of a new chapter and a new story, I guess. Thanks, Lena. Uh, really lovely to hear about that experience growing up in the Mediterranean city of Latakia, um, your, your um, secular upbringing, your enjoyment of life and enjoyment of uh, um, you know, peaceful study and and so on as you say images of Syria that we we are not presented with in the media on a regular basis at the moment we have a very different vision thanks to the civil war but then that change that civil war brought um changed to your plans changed to your future changed to your identity um and so on and and resulting in you having come to the UK to study but ending up staying and making it your home 
one goal of our project is to understand better the challenging journeys that forced migrants go on once they've stopped traveling and are trying to make a new home in a new place as you've done. So I wonder if you could highlight some things from your own experience of homemaking in Scotland, in the UK, that you think we all ought to be aware of as we try to visualize refugee and migrant experiences. First of all, let me say that I like your question a lot. I think we don't talk about the staying in place part enough. I hardly get asked about that part and the challenges associated with it. If, you know, people uh, who know about my experience um, of coming to the UK and staying in the UK think that I'm still on the move. It's like I haven't arrived yet. The problem is too often Uh, someone who crosses treacherous waters in a dinghy to claim asylum in a safe country becomes a refugee for life. And someone who leaves home once becomes a migrant for life. What people do not realize is that an understanding of migrant journeys and trajectories not only necessitates an understanding of mobility and how it is perceived and experienced by us migrants, but also calls for an equally profound grasp of immobility, the decisions made by us migrants to stay in place and continue. Migration research, for example, uh, mobility seems to overshadow the narratives that we tell about migrant lives, so much so that the moments when migrants are staying and not migrating escape our attention. I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that once a person settles in a new country, a new set of challenges arises as they navigate and try to build their new life. The hardest part for me was straddling two cultures, not knowing where I belonged anymore. This became even more problematic under certain alienating circumstances. Uh, Take Brexit as an example. Mm -hmm. You know, overnight, those who hid behind political correctness before 2016 were able to to tell us foreigners to go home. Um, So an event like Brexit or shaped at the time the way migrants felt about Britain. And I I was no exception. So it, it was rather alienating for me, uh, being a non-British, a non-European at the time. I couldn't vote and the future of this country was completely out of my control. So it's not really helpful when you're trying, you know, when you're working hard on uh, belonging to the place that you've decided to make um, home. Um, So that left me feeling at a loss. I was still working hard on establishing a sense of belonging, like I said, and my sense of belonging at the time was not as solid. Um, Being a Syrian refugee did not help back then either. I was in this liminal space. My very presence in Britain was questioned and repeatedly undermined by anti-migration or the dangerous migration uh, discourses that seemed to permeate British politics at the time and still do um, that today. So Brexit for me was and still is problematic because when I hear Brexit, I hear things like 
why do you stay in this country? I, I ask myself the question, should I stay or should I go? Am I welcome here? I also hear uh, Windrush generation. I hear deportation threats. I hear hostility to, to, to migrants. Um, I hear hostility to migrants, otherness, systemic racism, division. I hear us versus them and who belongs and who doesn't. The list goes on. So I do find myself wondering often, am I ever going to be considered truly British? Would this ever be truly home? So that was one of the challenges that I've um, experienced. The picture that you've sketched there of those challenges is very powerful. This existence in a liminal space that's not of your own making, that you're working hard to belong, but you're up against political pressures, cultural prejudice, prejudice mm -hmm. of immigrants generally compounded by the stereotype of the dangerous migrant, the dangerous refugee, refugees seen sometimes as threats, not only as victims, all of those assumptions and prejudices coming together and making for what we do call a hostile environment, but which you experience on a daily basis as a living thing, not simply as a sort of a political thing that gets discussed in the media. Um, so you know, as you've just sketched there, one, one of the greatest challenges that, that refugees and migrants face is bias and stereotyping. And that can lead to anything from microaggression to open hostility. And as you say, Brexit is one of the things that has facilitated that. In 2021, you published a really fantastic article on this topic called But You Don't Look Like a Syrian. And it begins with an anecdote about a conversation you had with a taxi driver in Edinburgh, which really speaks to that point you've just made about the question you still have many, many years on of whether you will ever feel like you truly belong, whether other people will ever feel like you truly belong. I wonder if you could just read the opening of that article for us. Certainly, it goes like this. Having paid our tribute to the Scottish weather, the conversation now took an unexpected turn. Seeing I did not look Scottish, my taxi driver wanted to know where I was from. Before I could answer, however, he interpolated with an emphatic proclamation saying I definitely was Spanish or Italian. How can you be so sure? I asked, to which he responded with pride. You speak very good English, but you have Spanish looks about you. I found his condescending confidence humorous, but I could not wait to prove him wrong. So I said, close, the Mediterranean, but not Spanish, I'm Syrian. What he said after that was completely unexpected, but you don't look like a Syrian. I learned later that apart from those Syrians he read about in the media or came across in the news, I was really the first Syrian he had ever met. Thank you. So that's how the article starts. And you then go on to explain that the taxi driver ended up saying that he thought all Syrian women wore the hijab and the fact that you didn't and that you spoke excellent English, as you say, made it harder for him to place you. In other words, he'd expected a Syrian woman to look more different and to sound more other. And so I was wondering, how common is that kind of stereotyping? How often have you encountered those kinds of stereotypes and prejudices in your years in the UK? I have encountered that kind of stereotyping in the UK. I wouldn't say often, though, because a few times over the period of 17 years is probably not that many. But having said that, I believe that these encounters are still significant and 
we need to talk about them because they go to show we have a problem that we cannot just sweep under the carpet pretending it doesn't exist. These encounters also show that migration and migrants are not the crisis. I know this sounds cliched, but they're not the crisis. It's the narratives that we tell about them that is the real crisis. The crisis that we currently have is that the media and our politicians are only focusing on the negative. They are, in fact, perpetuating negativity. There are no positive narratives out there, no good stories, to the point that people forget what a country like Syria, for example, was before the war. And the British media has contributed to this by dehumanizing migrants through news coverage. This dehumanizing occurs via Orientalist discourses, presenting migrants as a threat to security and Western values. In other words, they are the mysterious, frightening, uncivilized other. And I have experienced that. Things are the way they are because the elite are in control of knowledge production. It's no secret that the media plays a considerable role in manufacturing consent, as Noam Chomsky would say, and also legitimizing policies. Let's think back to Brexit. The British vote to leave Europe rested largely upon fear of migrants. So yes, refugees are constantly confronted by unfair stereotypes in the media and in politics. And I was no exception. I have been told all kinds of things, not just by that taxi driver, but even by work colleagues. And I do believe that these stereotypes are steeped in colonial values and knowledge structures that marginalize what is non-Western to the point of struggling to accept any other version of reality that contradicts what is historically imagined to be the case. Absolutely. And the, the way you started that answer there with migrants are not the crisis, narratives are the crisis, comes full circle as you explain, you know, the version of reality that's controlled by the narratives that gain traction, that are controlled by the people who are in charge and have influence over knowledge production and knowledge dissemination. It's all about storytelling and it's about the stories that um, that take off, that gain legitimacy, that gain traction, that are reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. And as you say, steeped in colonial orientalist thinking that see certain parts of the world, certain kinds of people as other, as mysterious, as strange, and therefore as concerning, as threatening, all of that feeds into then hostility towards individual people and groups of people, hostile policies, also hostile interactions. So let's get back to our taxi driver. As your article continues, you carry on. You say his attempts to categorize me were relentless, evident in yet another question asking when I came to the UK. Was it before or after the war? And that was followed by, I see, so you're not a refugee. What do you think was at stake for him in wanting to characterize you either as a migrant or as a refugee and in deciding that because you came initially as a student... You stayed because of the war, but you came as a student. He defined you as not a refugee. What was behind that and what effect did that have on your own sense of identity and your own self-descriptions afterwards? Yes, I still remember that exchange like it happened yesterday. And also the time I spent afterwards reflecting on that man's questions and my answers. 
The whole question of refugee versus migrant is a very important one. With more than 65 million people forcibly displaced globally and, you know, all the boat crossings of the Mediterranean still regularly in the headlines, the terms refugee and migrant are frequently being used interchangeably in media, in public discourse. But is there a difference between the two? And does it matter? Yes, there is a difference. And yes, it does matter. The, the thing is, the two terms have distinct and different meanings. And confusing them leads to problems for both populations. And I'm speaking here about migrants and refugees, but also problems for the host community. I think the attempt to categorize me as a migrant at the time was problematic because the man assumed that I didn't fit the typical refugee stereotype. So here we have two issues that are highly problematic. First, I think there is this assumption that there is a typical refugee, which in turn suggests that there is an atypical refugee. And we've seen this recently in how Ukrainian refugees have been treated in comparison to typical refugees. We have all seen how the welcome mat for refugees fleeing war-torn Ukraine stood in stark contrast to recent anti-immigrant policies targeting those from you know, places like the Middle East, Latin America, Africa, uh, and Asia. The second problem here is that once you are categorized as a migrant, you are immediately seen as someone who doesn't need protection, doesn't need to stay, and can go back to where you came from. And we've seen this argument used by the media and the government to legitimize certain refugee groups and invalidate others. Unfortunately, politics has a way of intervening in such debates. So conflating refugees and migrants can have serious consequences for the lives and safety of refugees. And blurring the two terms takes attention away from the specific legal protection it needs that refugees require. So in a way, it can undermine public support for refugees and the institution of asylum at a time when more refugees need such protection than ever before. So to go back to how that exchange made me feel, I think people's words stay with us and they can influence our narratives and what we internalize, how we interact with the world. So they can become frames of reference that we use to define ourselves. I do remember that after that conversation in the taxi, I do remember that for a while after that, I started subconsciously adding, I came before the war to any statement I made about my status and life in the UK. And I found that highly problematic because it was scary to see how people's perceptions can impact the way we see ourselves and the way we interact with the world around us. So yes, they can be very, very dangerous.
Yeah. So narratives have power. Words themselves have power. Words carry such stronger connotations. So the word migrant and the word refugee have been built up in very different ways. And as you say, there are lots of people who are kind of patrolling not just what a typical refugee looks like, sounds like, but what a worthy refugee is like and using that then to define against that legitimize or delegitimize or invalidate other kinds of migration migrants not being in need of protection migrants being characterized as parasitical on the state and all sorts of other um, very unpleasant storytelling around that so yes there's an awful lot at stake and politicians and refugee groups you know, are, are constantly fighting over the terminology and the definition and the connotations that are associated with, because it does then have real world consequences if you, as you yourself have experienced. Before you arrived at your destination, the taxi driver asked you one more thing. He asked, do you want to go home? Implying, of course, that Scotland was not your home. And, that, you know, that was yet another well-meaning question. This was a friendly taxi driver, but it was packed with microaggression and it continued to other you as not belonging here. What was your response? What was your internal response? What was your out loud response? I think it, internally I, I knew and accepted that I was a foreigner and I was seen as such. And it was OK. I mean, I, I didn't look Scottish. I'm a Mediterranean woman. On some level, I also felt a little sadness. I think I've worked hard uh, for so long over the past 17 years to make this country home. My little boy was born here. He, Scotland is all he knew. And it just felt slightly disheartening to hear the taxi driver, you know, so convinced that where I am right now, the here and the now, Scotland was not really my home, but only a temporary place from which I can only return somewhere else. I guess I accepted it, but at the same time, it filled me with sadness. My out loud answer, though, was that I remember saying to the driver, oh, believe me, I long to be back home, to be able to go back one day and then to, you know, being able to call two countries home. I think that it's a privilege to be able to call different places home and just try and move beyond restrictive frame of reference of what home is or what it should be. And the combination of your out loud and your internal responses there really does help us visualize some important truths about the experience of forced migration, of displacement, of becoming a refugee. Um, that sense that, of course, the labor of homemaking in the new place that you end up, the rupture in your mind of trying to imagine the home where your child has been born as not somehow still being your home, but also the desire at some point to reconnect with a place that has been torn apart by conflict that you grew up in, that was your childhood home. And as you say, that privilege of being allowed by others to consider both places home and not be pigeonholed as one or the other and not feel torn between the two and not actually having to live in that liminal space that's somehow between them both. So you've experienced this implication of not belonging, of not being British, despite having British citizenship 
and not having the right to comment on British issues elsewhere. And I'm thinking particularly of a talk you gave on what Brexit means for Britain's cultural and national identity. And, you know, this is something that you are expert in. This is part of your area of research. So you, you gave a talk about what the alienating stance of Brexit has meant for immigrants in particular. I wonder if you can tell us what happened in that talk and what one member of the audience in particular said in response to you. I gave a talk about Brexit a few years ago. In this talk, I spoke about Brexit from a migrant academics perspective. So I had just become a new citizen and I'd proudly used words and expressions such as my country and our country when I spoke about Britain. I remember being challenged on the day by a woman in the audience who couldn't understand why someone like me, a Mediterranean Syrian woman, a migrant and non-white person would call Britain or Scotland home or why I would be interested in Brexit, which only apparently concerned white British and European people. I do recall saying, but I'm British now, I'm a citizen. Um, and so is my son, he was born here, Scotland is all he knows. And her response was, oh, you are? Oh, okay. <laughs> Clearly at the time, my academic curiosity did not matter to her. My new citizen status uh, did not seem to matter either. And my genuine interest in the wider national and international political development, I mean, that was part of my job. Uh, we are, as academics, paid to think and reflect critically on what's happening in the world. So yes, all of that didn't seem to matter to her. Um, I have to admit that that interaction left me baffled at the time, and her words stayed with me for long after that talk. And eventually, the whole exchange to my writing an article for the conversation at the time to reflect on that interaction uh, alongside other important issues, including migration, racism, and the rise and associated impact of a right-wing conservative political movement in the UK and beyond. But what struck me the most on that occasion was the undermining of my hard work as a foreigner, as a migrant, as a new citizen who was trying to make this country feel like home. I guess, you know, as I said before, following the Syrian war, Scotland was a country I chose for me and my family, a place where I had a job. I was a taxpayer, where I have formed long-lasting friendships and created memories and become an active member of the community. So Scotland is home to me and a place to which I feel a profound sense of belonging until Brexit came along because that did impact my sense of belonging. And I, I've certainly heard lots of other people in your shoes talk about that, talk about Brexit in that way. It's a recurring theme of our conversation and something that's really helping me visualise forced migration better. The recurring theme of the hard work, the labour involved, and contrasting that with the easy privilege of someone who is born in a country who looks like everyone else in the country. So that is one of the recurring themes, but also who gets to control 
the discourse, who gets to control the storytelling. And that narrative, that anecdote that you've just told of the woman's response to you as an academic with lots of expertise, lots of understanding, with lots of curiosity, asking questions, contributing to the discussion about the ramifications, the ripple effect of the Brexit referendum, that anecdote where someone in the audience questions your right to contribute, your right to have a say, really seeing where the ways in which who gets to ask questions, who gets to comment, who gets to tell the story is policed. That kind of response is a very important reminder that borders exist and get reinforced in people's heads, not just on the ground. And it's also a reminder that some people just find it incredibly hard to see past the migrant identity, to see the rich, complex whole of the human being who happens to be a refugee, to see the mother, to see the academic and so on. And I know this is something that you spoke about in your one woman show at the Fringe this summer, your frustration with reductive narratives that reduce all Syrians and all refugees into one amorphous mass of people who are perceived either as a threat or as victims, rather than individuals in their own right with lives, children, careers, homes, hopes and dreams. So I wonder if you can tell us a bit now about that fringe show, which was called Become a Sexy Refugee in Five Easy Steps. What motivated you to develop it and what did you want to achieve with it? Before I answer that, let me just tell you a little bit about the cabaret of dangerous ideas, which was the initiative through which I did my show. So the cabaret of dangerous ideas was established in 2003 as a collaboration between Edinburgh-based universities and Edinburgh Festival Fringe to provide academics with the space to engage with the public by us performing our research on stage to a general audience. So yeah, that's how I took part. I think how the idea came to me, I think there was a moment when I knew I wanted to be on stage to do that show. It felt like an epiphany at the time. Um, I remember watching and reading the news and witnessing the discrepancy in the world's reaction to different refugee crises. You know, listening to some European commentators on Western media describing Ukrainian refugees as being civilized, being middle class and prosperous and different from those from third world nations. And I remember thinking at the time, well, I'm middle class, I'm prosperous, I'm civilized. And I found that rhetoric uh, extremely unfairly reductive. I felt that, you know, all of a sudden I was all of my life and my, uh, you know, story and my experience and even my privilege and my hopes and dreams and everything that made me, me, the woman I am, was you know, reduced to a label. So at the time, I think I also witnessed a few European politicians stressing how Ukrainian refugees were qualitatively superior by virtue of their race and religion to those from countries in, you know, Asia, Africa, uh, the Middle East, uh, Latin America, which is collectively known as the Global South. People said things like, you know, these people are Europeans while referring to Ukrainians. So all that and some of the microaggressions I encountered over the 17 years I spent living in the UK made me keen to expose those double standards that exist 
both at the UK border and in the media's portrayal of refugees. I think for me, that was my chance to speak out publicly, yes, about those injustices committed against migrants, refugees and asylum seekers. And it helped me reflect on how we think and speak of them in our everyday conversation. Just like what you just said, Alice, you know, who gets to speak on their behalf? Who gets to represent them? The reason I also wanted to do that show was because I wanted to practice what I preached. I guess as an academic and researcher, I believe that research is futile, is meaningless without praxis. So that was my chance to use my privilege to speak out against those injustices. One last point I I would like to make here is this, and, and this probably is the main reason for doing that show. Now, imagine if a stranger were to tell your story in their own words, okay? Also, imagine that this stranger believed their own fantasies about you more than what you told them about yourself. And imagine this stranger's voice was loud enough for all the world to hear, but yours was not. So this is exactly how it felt like to be a Syrian living in the West at the time. I wanted to raise my voice and speak my truth and my story. And that's how that show came to exist. Mm -hmm. And this idea of voices that aren't loud enough, voices that aren't heard, that aren't amplified, and the voices that dominate, connecting up with everything you've said about labelling, about reduction of ideas, and reducing people to ideas, reducing people to fantasies, to stereotypes, all of that's connecting up. We'll come back to those issues in a minute, I think. But I want, first of all, just to ask you about the title, Become a Sexy Refugee in Five Easy Steps, because this is you trying to reclaim the refugee identity, trying to shift ideas and shift thinking about how refugees come across to other people. So can you tell us a little bit about the title? The title was really a lighthearted way for me to say that I'm not and and no one should be fooled by this intention in the media and by politicians to divide refugees between those who are deserving and undeserving, you know, as if one war is sexier than another or one group, you know, of refugees is fleeing persecution while the other is just being too dramatic. I think, you know, those plucked from refugee camps uh, winning a one-way lottery ticket to the UK, those are deserving. But those who are fleeing desperately across the channel, undeserving. So yeah, it was my way of saying everybody is deserving. No one is more important than the other. Yeah, so really trying to address the unfairness in the idea that some refugees are seen, as you say, as more deserving than others. Trying to bust some myths, expand people's understanding of the variety of refugee experiences, the variety of reasons people might flee for, the variety of reasons people might come to the UK for, the variety of experiences behind them, and so on. And really tackle what you call the tyranny of the single narrative, the single story that reduces people to these very, very narrow labels that that then categorize people into deserving or not deserving, worthy, not worthy, acceptable, welcome, familiar and not acceptable and worrying and frightening and threatening. You started the show wearing a headscarf and you started with a bit of belly dancing. What points were you keen to make with that? Just to clarify, there was no actual belly dancing. (laughs) I did cheekily promise it though, (laughs) just to pique my audience's interest. 
And I think it worked. <laughs> so my aim for wearing the, the headscarf was twofold. First of all, I wanted to dress like that in order to demonstrate some of the stereotypes and cliches and preconceptions that people have ascribed to me during my time in the UK, or to borrow a beautiful metaphor from Nikesh Shukla's book, The Good Immigrant. It felt like a necklace of labels hanging around my neck. So yes, that was the main reason for doing that. Secondly, I wanted to take the discussion on migrants and refugees or the other uh, from abstraction to concreteness, to go back to my little anecdote from my taxi journey. Before the taxi driver dropped me off uh, at my destination, he said something that I will never forget. He said that he was glad he'd met someone from Syria, that now he could tell people that he has and that I seemed <laughs> like a decent person. I know it was another microaggression, but I decided at the time that I would consider it as a peace offering, you know, something that was somewhat positive. Because let's look at it this way, Syria was not an image of war and destruction in that particular moment. Syria in that moment was a woman who spoke his language and was able to show him a different face of Syria. And, and that busted some of the myths he may have held about my country. So when I talk to people about Syria, you know, I try to make a point of mentioning how Syria was before the war and how uh, I lived and how our life was. I think it all starts with words, really, and words are very important in shaping public opinion and making real change in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Words and dialogue are world building. And, and that is your solution. Your solution is more storytelling, lots of storytelling. So countering the tyranny of the single narrative, the tyranny of the voices that control knowledge production, the imbalance in power in whose voices get heard and whose don't. Your solution is to tell lots and lots of different stories that stories of multiple experiences, multiple people's voices can be a vital tool in changing things for the better. They can drive prejudice and hostility, but multiple stories can help erode that, erode the prejudice, break it down, as you say, bust those myths, do what happened for your taxi driver through that dialogue that you had. So what kinds of stories do you think we do need to hear, tell, share and amplify about refugees and forced migrants to make this positive difference in their experiences and in how other people interact with them? I believe all stories are important. They are powerful. They are innately human and they provide new perspectives. I think what we need are stories that are authentic, stories that emphasize individuals, stories that mention their names, stories that demonstrate the many dimensions that make a person unique. What this means is that stories that reduce a person to their migrant-ness or refugee-ness need to be avoided. I'm also not very keen on stories that portray us migrants and refugees as either helpless victims or superheroes. I think humanity shouldn't be reduced to one or the other because as humans, we are a lot more complex than that. This is actually reminding me of a great article by the Turkish-British writer Elif Shafak uh, that I read in The Guardian just after the pandemic hit in 2020. In this article, Shafak talked 
about the art of storytelling and its role in bringing down walls of numbness and indifference, especially in times of social isolation, which applies to uh, you know, situations in which migrants and refugees find themselves. But perhaps the strongest point that she made in that article was that storytelling is a democratic space. And is important. Our aim is to establish uh, inclusive communities and uh, societies. Just as we need sisterhood against patriarchy, we need storyhood against bigotry. And I think I do that in my own research, to be honest. I I use autoethnography as a methodological approach because I believe that it has transformative qualitative power and it has also the potential for healing for us as individuals and as a society, especially for people who are dealing with trauma and trying to process trauma in order to heal. The aim of an autoethnographic approach is to recreate the researcher's experience in a reflexive way. And it aims at making a connection to the reader, which can help readers to think and reflect about their own experiences. I guess what refugees and migrants need the most is for the world to actively listen and practice what is called cultural humility, which is a way for us to be curious and respectful towards you know, other people from other cultures. You're giving us so much to think about here, Lena, actively listening, cultural humility, and you're dripping some wonderful metaphors into the conversation as well. So counterbalancing that necklace of labels that you mentioned earlier that hang around someone's neck and weigh them down is this wonderful metaphor of stories bringing down walls of numbness and indifference and absolutely autoethnography, eliciting people's personal stories, having them tell their own stories, share their own story and have the chance to get beyond, as you put, their migrantness, beyond that one dimension of their multidimensional whole. I think you've spent quite a lot of time talking to people at Calais, hearing their stories, working with Syrian refugees in Edinburgh. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, a practice that you do of autoethnography with other people? Yes, I have spent some time in Calais volunteering with refugees there and I've worked with Syrian refugees here in Edinburgh since the first family arrived back in 2014. My interaction with those groups mainly showed the importance of bringing their stories to the attention of other people. And I think my autoethnographic approach works beautifully because I can then work with them, but also reflect on my own place in the world in terms of my proximity to them, in terms of experience, in terms of, you know, where I come from, also my own experience of migration, in order to highlight some of the most important problems that they experience on a daily basis whether the refugees who are still trying to find a place or reach a place of safety, or whether they have already been granted asylum and are building a life in a new country. So yes, autoethnography can be very useful in that sense, because it helps bringing me closer to them and to my heritage in a way. 
Yeah, absolutely. This idea of bringing stories to other people's attention is such a powerful mechanism for everyone and really facilitating that intercultural dialogue, which is at the heart of your personal experience, but also your research, your academic study and your academic practice. So you performed your Fringe show, as you say, at the Cabaret of Dangerous Ideas. And I wonder if you can just sum up what your dangerous idea was. My dangerous idea, without sounding cliched, was that the crisis we have is not a migrant or a refugee one. Uh, We have a storytelling crisis, a narrative crisis even. I think we should tell our stories and be proud of the good and the bad and not quiet down or make a fuss just because uh, what we say makes others feel uncomfortable. I have seen migrants and refugees do that and be apologetic for expressing themselves for for fear of being accused of not being grateful to the country hosting them. Let us be ourselves if we are to ever belong, Um, because integration, and I have reservations about this word, but for want of a better term uh, right now, I'm going to use it. Uh, Integration is a two-way process. The onus is not just on us, migrants. It's a mutual responsibility. So my point was that we need to stop trying to be good and grateful and prove we are deserving because we have nothing to be grateful for. Searching for a good life and dreaming big dreams is everybody's right. Our stories are maps of who we are, what we've seen, and where we've been. And no one is more capable of telling them than we are. So a storytelling crisis, but also a listening crisis, storytelling solutions and listening solutions. As you spoke there, I was thinking about everything that's been in the news in the week that we are recording this. Lots more hostile rhetoric from the UK government about immigrants flooding, in in their words, an invasion very inflammatory vocabulary used by our current Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, obviously um, deplored by all sorts of different people, um, but feeding into narratives and the sense that migrants and refugees are people that everyone talks about, that everyone talks for, but we don't get to hear the voices of the people behind the fences in those detention centres, those migrant processing centres. We don't get to hear the voices of the people who are risking their lives on dinghies across the channel, who are finding all sorts of other routes to come to the UK as well, or to find safety and dream big dreams in other parts of the world. So there's that crisis of voice of storytelling, but also that listening issue, as you say, integration being a two-way process, a mutual responsibility, a responsibility that we open our ears, that we listen, that we listen with cultural humility, that we actively listen and therefore can perhaps engage in more productive dialogue. Lena, it would be really interesting to hear how your audiences reacted to the show. How did they listen, both in person and online? There were mixed reactions, and I expected that given the fact that the show was controversial. (laughs) Some of those reactions were friendly and encouraging, and others were racist and abusive. Without going into too much detail, as you would expect uh, when you speak about migration, migrant and refugee related issues. So it was no surprise, but I refuse to let it get to me. I have learned that I should keep telling my story and encourage others like me to tell theirs because that's our responsibility and our right. Yeah, absolutely. As I said, we're recording this podcast in a week where 
the political rhetoric about immigrants in the UK has become more divisive and more toxic than ever. Classic, single, reductive, cruel narratives that are othering refugees. But you're talking very, very powerfully about rights as well as responsibilities. How optimistic or pessimistic do you feel about the future? Whose stories do you think will be heard? Whose stories do you think will prevail and will have the most political influence in the coming years? I believe hope and despair are inseparable. Uh, so I guess that makes me a uh, optimist. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need forward thinking optimism as much as we need a basic level of pessimism. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by this. I think if we are only hopeful, then we wouldn't be able to sense the need for change would we? And if we are only pessimistic, then we won't be able to see the good that is out there in the world or the significant role we could play in making change happen. You know, when I spent a week in Calais, I met wonderful people. Those people were optimistic that change was coming and they had a role to play. They believed that they had a role to play, a responsibility towards those refugees. But they also did what they did because they knew things were wrong and needed our attention. So they, they wanted to actively address their pessimism by doing something about it and helping those people. It may take long for us to see meaningful political change, but change on a social uh, or a community level is possible if people invest more energy in fostering human connection and empathy and finding out for themselves what someone's story is rather than believe what the media says. So I think when we listen, truly listen to someone else's story, we understand who they are in a new and different way. We hear their perspective, their interpretation, and their understanding of the world and of themselves. To answer the second part of your question, whose stories do you think will be heard? Every story is important, should be heard, but under the current uh, political uh, circumstances, it's hard to know for sure whose story will be heard. But let's hope it's not those with radical views who believe that refugees and migrants do not deserve a home and a good life. Absolutely. You talked earlier about storytelling being a very democratic, inclusive tool. And of course, we can all play a role in this. We can all listen as well as share and amplify people's stories. So if listeners to this podcast want to help adjust how individuals, how politicians, how the media, how we as a society visualize refugees and forced migrants, what can they, what can we do in our daily lives to help? Let me start by saying that change is often a frustratingly slow-paced and painful process and we barely recognize it's happening. But the role we play is huge because change starts with us. I'm talking about starting with those who are here already, you know, those groups who need help. I'm talking about listening to them, actively listening and actively taking interest in their lives and histories and dreams and hopes for the future. I'm talking about speaking with them, you know, speak to your neighbor who wears a headscarf and whose skin color is darker than yours the way you would a new neighbor whose skin color is similar to yours. You'll find they're not scary. They are human beings just like the rest of us. So what I'm talking about here really, the things that people can help with is basically listening while acknowledging and reflecting 
on their own biases. And that is an intrinsic part of a very important element of being culturally humble. We can't be humble with others. We can't accept them and, you know, be able to communicate with them and have compassion for them if we don't reflect on our own biases. Just to sum it up, I think there is no act more generous and humane than letting someone tell their story the way they want their story to be told and heard and listen to them actively while practicing self-reflection. Let's all be generous. That's all. I would also add that it's important to normalize stories of and by the other. Normalize migrant narrative. Invite them to speak in your department. Ask your migrant neighbor who they really are, not where they are really from. It, it is important to center the narratives of marginalized groups, make them matter. The Syrian refugees I worked with in Edinburgh and those refugees I met in Calais wanted to do one thing above all else. They longed for an opportunity to tell the world their story. They were starved of human connection. Absolutely. Lena, you've given us so much to think about and so much that we can go and do in our everyday lives, question stereotypes, question our own stereotypes, our own biases, other people's too. We can do our own research by simply listening to other people. I love the way you put it. There's no more generous or human gift than letting someone else tell their own story in their own way and listening to that. And this idea that change can start with us. We don't have to believe the narratives that are fed through the media, through political debate. We can question them. And through the simple act of listening to someone else, doing autoethnography with them, you know, it's simply about listening and dialogue and conversation. So thank you, Lena, so much. It's been fascinating talking to you, fascinating hearing your own story as an academic, as a mother, as a migrant, as a forced migrant and refugee, as someone who has worked so hard to make a home in a new country, who would love to be able to go back to the Syria of your childhood, who wants people to visualize Syria in the way that you experienced it growing up, not simply as a country ravaged by civil war, and who's doing very, very important work in Scotland, in the UK, addressing the tyranny of the single narrative about refugees, amplifying other people's voices. All of this goes very much, as I said, to the heart of the Visualizing Forced Migration Project, which we're running at the moment, which is all about amplifying all sorts of different stories of forced migration from different periods and places as a way of stretching our habits of understanding it and of narrating it. So we're really grateful to you for sharing your views, your thoughts, your experience and your research on this. Thank you for having me and for such excellent questions. I have very much enjoyed chatting about stories with you and uh, I wish you all the best with your project. It sounds fantastic. Thank you also to you, our listeners, for joining us again. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lena Fadell as much as I did. Please do keep tuning into our podcast. As I said at the start, we've got a series of episodes coming out exploring different aspects of how we visualize forced migration and listening to lots of different voices on forced migration as part of our wider work on war and its aftermath. If you've got any questions about our work, please do get in touch. You can follow us on social media, just search for Visualising War, or contact us directly by emailing us at viswar at 
If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you very much for listening.